Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you another programme of Art Monthly's talk show on Resonance 104.4 FM. You've probably just heard the jingle from Resonance 104.4 FM, which is great. Um, I'm joined in the studio today to make a programme for an hour with f- by four people who've come. Patricia Bickers, our editor of Art Monthly magazine, and Dave Barrett, who is the associate editor of Art Monthly as well. And he's written a polemic in the current issue, which is the May issue... 366, which is what the programme's based on. Now, this issue is particularly about education, art education, and the funding of the arts. Um, There's lots of pieces in it which cover that area. We are covering two features, a polemic and a book review and the editorial, um, and probably others as well. Um, And the idea is that everyone talks... um, in and out of these pieces, and we hope to have a discussion. Um, now, I'm also joined by Dave Beach. He's written a feature which we've called Cuts, and Felicity Allen, writer and artist, who's written a piece. Um, I mean, basically, it's about the sketchbook and its current treatment in education, um, possibly to be used as an example, Felicity. We'll come back to you, and I know your piece is about much more than that, but that's hopefully how we'll practicalise the show, because we have some pieces which are fairly um, deep historically and uh, critically and uh, philosophically, I would say. Um, Dave Beach, in particular, um, your book review, Dave, basically gives us a bit of a history, really, of of how art schools started, which we'd want to, to bring in, because we're talking about, really, the difference between where we are now and where art school is now based in, in the UK, in, in universities. And really, it's been, I, th- I think it's very interesting to find out and remind everybody, if they don't know, and I certainly didn't know until I read this issue, where it began. I mean, Patricia, um, I know, will know also that um, there was, uh, 600 years ago, a man who said that art school should join the academy, didn't you, Patricia? And, 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 and then you bring up, Dave, in your piece, J- Jeremy Bentham. Um, Tell us, what did, what did you say about Jeremy? You, I mean, you were doing a book review, which I should really say what the book was. Um, I need to hurriedly turn a page to be able to read it, but it was Malcolm Quinn's The Utilitarian and the Art School in 19th Century Britain you were reviewing. Yeah, well, um, what, what comes out of this book is really um, the argument that the, that the art school, as we know it, is, uh, is, is, a, is a bourgeois institution. It arises with the... Uh, the middle class attempting to, if you like, uh, take art and aesthetics and beauty away from the aristocracy. And so they have to set up their own institutions in order to do that. And to a certain extent, what we're seeing at the moment, it seems, is the death of that very institution. So that, that raises the question, it seems to me, so do the middle class not need an art institution anymore? Or is it the fact that the aristocracy have so little grasp of art now that they don't need institutions to defend it against them, that in a sense they think that the market will automatically uh, make art their own. I could uh, add to this that exactly that is what happened. Alberti, Leon Battista Alberti, who wrote Della Pittura in 1435 or thereabouts, um, he was a déclassé middle-class person who ended up having to make a living as an artist. And to improve the social social status of artists, which was their intellectual status, above that of an artisan, was a personal mission. And so 
the middle classes are really responsible for taking up education where it is now. I, one of the reasons it may be imploding, this system that has actually gone from workshop to his basic curriculum for an academy, then the academies imploded when students rioted about having to study the plaster cast one more time and invent a classical subject one more time and compete for the Prix de Rome. And, of course, this is the beginning of assessment and making it like other academic subjects. Um, so they achieved this, and then it imploded, and it's imploding again. And each time, I would argue that one of the reasons it's imploding is because the working classes got in. And so we've got to keep them out... Or destroy that the was in parenthesis, wasn't it, Patricia? <laughs> just, 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 just so we keep our cred, please. <laughs> and I think um, one of the things that killed off the academy was that when women were admitted to the academy and were allowed at last to draw the life model nude, and therefore the cachet of being an academician, because that was only academies had the license to draw the nude body, meant now women could do it. Oh, well, then it's not worth it anymore. It's no longer a distinguishing mark. So if the working classes end up in the academy, well, then we have to make them something else, a school of design. What, what's interesting, I think, or one of the interesting arguments in Malcolm Quinn's book is that there were at the time um, when, uh, when Bentham was arguing, or Bentham's um, uh, school, Bentham's uh, followers were arguing for a, for a state-sponsored institution for art, what we call the art school, while they were arguing for that, other um, liberal uh, middle-class uh, leaders were arguing that the market should take care of this. And we ended up with the art school because the, the Benthamites won the argument that the market wasn't sufficient to counteract the power of the aristocracy who were, who were not the dominant class, but, but they held very important positions within the government and administration. Now, what, what seems to have happened is that, in a sense, the Benthamite argument has now finally lost to the free market argument, which was always there all the way through all the whole history. Mm-hmm. And we, we're talking now about this word, which is probably the word most repeated in any issue of Art Monthly, neoliberalism. It's in almost every piece that's in the magazine. That, that's now who... I mean, that's, that's what you... I, I mean... To move to your feature, Dave, perhaps um, not to, we can't return back to this, but I just, you know, that's what's that's what's what you're pro- proposing. We have to beat and how to beat yeah. it. But, um, and when we're saying, I mean, what I'm also interested in as a reader, because this is a complicated issue to get your head around. To be honest with you, is we've got Felicity's um, feature, which is about the kind of practical realities of the article. Why? Why? What is it that we want to stop? Occurring in the universities, that's the experience that is is bad enough for us all. I mean, because obviously you know there's the economic arguments and there's you know the left wing and the right wing and all that. But in reality, you're a student, you're a tutor in the art schools. You've got to actually deal with something that's being imposed on you, and the effect of it is. What would you, what would you say, Felicity? It has you know in, on the sort of. What's the word? The studio floor. They don't have them anymore, though, do they? That's the trouble. Yes. Well, I just want to pick up on um, please what do, Patricia please do. was saying, actually, in terms of the working classes coming in, because I, in a way what seems to me to be happening <clears throat> is a stratification that's happening in art schools but also in um, state schools generally. And so state schools have become what were secondary modern schools when I was a child. Um, and 
therefore, basically, there's a kind of psychological process that's going on, which is about training and assessment and behaviorism. And the me methodologies of behaviorism are happening all the way through state schools, uh, through the assessment process. Um, and that is a way, if you like, of containing, in quotes, the working classes. And so, therefore, allow them into art schools, assess them into oblivion, basically. Yes. Absolutely. But you say assessment was, was there from the it beginning? Was, um, it was always there once um, the academy was set up in Florence with backing from the, the Duke, Cosimo de' Medici. Once you had a patron, then the patron wants to see results. They don't want to be um, their name given to something full of people um, just hanging out and not producing and not controllable. Mm. They want to see where their money's going. Mm. You can say the same about local councils when they had art schools in their, uh, as part of their remit, funding of art schools, and parents, parental pressure. You know, I don't want my kid going to art school mm. unless it's a girl, of course, mm. in the post-war period. It didn't matter if girls went to art school, but if a boy went to an art school, what's he coming out with? What's an NDD? Mm. So the pressure to have a degree, mm. and the local council would like that because then they've got a university in their neighbourhood. Mm. And so gradually, more and more assessment became homogenized mm. and it's of course assessment is a form of as you're saying a form of control mm. and then of course if you uh, the old art school for all its faults everyone could get in you didn't have to have criteria that fitted with a normal university um, course mm. and so you could get oddballs and people starting late or people just talented who wanted to go to art school without maths without maths without <laughs> or Latin. literature or latin and that big, once the working classes found their way into art schools you had as you say the gatekeepers arrive and so you have you start preventing people going simply by entrance criteria. Mm. When suddenly, I remember the transition when you had to have three A-levels, like you were going to university. Mm. This was before they actually became mm. absorbed by universities. Mm. Mm. And one of the things driving this, and why I blame the people inside as well as outside art schools, is exactly Alberti's desire for academic status mm. and social, therefore, therefore social status. Mm. Once you started calling every Tom, Dick and Harry in the new university as a professor, everybody vying with this, then of course you trap them with the research assessment exercise, now the research excellence framework, whatever that means. Um, and you're, so basically you're bookending this, or the gatekeepers are being careful about who's allowed in, mm. and then when you're in, the door shuts, and creativity is the cost, that's the, the price you pay. Mm. This is where mm. you're, um, examination of how the assessment process internalizes all these breaks on creativity. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it's a, not a perfectly good time to do that. I mean, this basically we're talking about sketchbooks, and you you give you talk about two types of sketchbook. One, I believe, being the artist sketchbook and how you see that at its most ideal mm. use mm -hmm. by the artist, mm -hmm. and then how it's used in the education mm. of people trying to become artists well, now? I first became very conscious of this when I was working at Tate um, and looking at uh, sketchbooks done by school kids for assessment through the GCSE period. And um, I realised that what was happening... I mean, I'm a lifelong diarist and sketchbook keeper, um, as most artists, I think, are. Um, 
in one way or another. And what I realised was that the ways in which these um, young people were being taught was the absolute antithesis of both um, arts of, of art professional practice, if you like, and also of um, creative thinking in, in the kind of terminology. Um, and so one of the key things, look, I, I spent some time looking at other artists, sketchbooks, uh, contemporary artists, who, you know, my peers, um, and realising that actually uh, one of the things about them was that they refused to, to um, be linear, they refused to be controlled by other people. They were absolutely controlled, if you like, influenced by other people, but absolutely they were the hand of the artist in, in a way that um, is exploring their own relation to their practice and their thinking. Them, a kind of, I would, what I've called a kind of mucky self, the, the, the space between the, the kind of un, semi-conscious, unconscious, conscious self and the work. Obviously, if you are assessing um, sketchbooks in schools, um, you're having a completely different relation to those um, those aspects of the self and those aspects to practice as well. It's uh, because of assessment and because assessment is so clearly there in process, not just at the end of a year or the end of two years, but absolutely in process every week, every weekday. Um, and it is internalised as a way of thinking for the young people. The chances of them actually exploring uh, the kind of material that is helping them become an artist through the performance of making um, their self through the, through the sketchbook, um, it it completely inhibits them and it completely prevents that from ha that process from ha happening. So what it does, it tells you, it turns you in to a different compliant sort of artist. It's changing what artistic practice is and what an artistic self is. And what I see is the ways in which we kind of unthinkingly, unwittingly incorporate those echoes of those systems into the art school. So because assessment is so um, time-consuming and boring and futile, most self-respecting artists operating in or lecturing in art schools do things to try and eradicate the, um, the multiplicity of it. So they try and homogenise things in order to make things more readable, more accessible. Uh, so you get the standard sketchbooks, you get the standard learning logs, you get the standardization of a practice, which means that you're creating a compliant and uniform um, version of what an artist is. The standard one. Yeah. <laughs> there are, I think there are two things that are, that are coming out of this uh, that we need to... That, and I know that they, f they form part of a, of a kind of coherent whole, but they, I think we need to separate them in terms of our strategies for subverting them. One is the bureaucratization of art and our education, and the other is the commodification of art and our education. And I, and I think that what, what, what we're saying is that there, there's something about art which, when you bureaucratize it, when you standardize it, you lose what is important about it. Mm. Now, so, so in that sense, the bureaucratization of art is a kind of self-defeating process because what you end up with is bureaucracy, not art. Mm. And I think what, what's also clear is that the commodification of art education, for instance, where you treat students as uh, purchasers, as mm. customers, um, it, 
what what that what that misses out is something that is absolutely essential to our education, which is that our education is something that you cannot buy. Okay, we know that you have to pay fees, but that doesn't actually get you the grade. All right, the grade has to be earned, and our education is something that can only be achieved through self-exertion and self-transformation. In other words. The purchase of it, the exchange of money for the education, does not give you the education. So it's not a commodity. Mm. It's not a commodity in the ordinary sense that you go to a shop, you give them some money, they give you an apple. You have the commodity in your hand just by giving them the money. Mm. Now, in our education, you don't have what you went for just by paying your fees. You have to engage in some kind of extended, authentic, deliberate, and often quite painful process. And that cannot be commodified you mentioned grade and I know in your piece you do talk about quality and obviously there is an interesting mm. difficulty I can't even formulate the question really because it is this is obviously a, well, a big one so paradox. Patricia do help me out yes please well, there's this paradox that um, as you say students are treated as consumers this whole Tory mantra of choice but choice should depend on an informed choice but how does an 18-year-old embarking on their education know which choices to make? At the end of three years of some form of education, probably they are qualified to make choices, but not at the beginning. This puts the whole commercial cart before the artistic horse. Can I yeah, Felicity. I just want to echo that and, and say that one of the kind of ghastly kind of um, double binds of assessment is the way in which assessment is apparently used in order, and, and the publication of it is, is used in order to, as it were, inform choice uh, by students. And of course, it, uh, if you have, have had the experience of being assessed in that way that I described, uh, actually, your notions of what choice and what assessment can mean are extremely limited. But also, I think, in a way, this is an opportunity, uh, if you agree, Matt, that um, one of the things that occurred to us preparing this issue is that, and, and, and led largely by Dave's um, feature on cuts, is that there's a tendency to think that some of this has happened in a shambolic sort of way, mm. that the arts are sort of add-on to all Tory economic policy or government economic policy. Mm. But what Dave makes very clear is that this is a long-term agenda that has finally been fulfilled with the unexpected help of Tony Blair, a new Labour um, Prime Minister. But actually this was laid down by Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher that they didn't actually have quite the guts to go through with it, as Dave explains, and I'll hand over to him. But, of course, she had another agenda, which was the coal miners, which uh, in a went, she really want, went for that battle, rather than taking on grammar schools was part of it. They wanted to ban grammar schools, make all education private. But also, um, and it's the opening of your feature, I hand over to you, that Keith Joseph already projected something that has come to fruition under this coalition government. Well, Sir Keith, in 1984, Sir Keith Joseph was forced to abandon plans to introduce tuition fees. So uh, in, in that sense, um, Blair, is, um, Blair, Blair is the second coming of, in, in terms of historical events. Um, not, not the second coming, please. <laughs> yeah, well, well he, he, he would like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dave, didn't mean to distract you there. Apologies. Um, so, so, you know, the... Um, he, he is the um, 
Well, he, he's bringing on this, this finally, he's, this, this major change. He's not the author of his own actions. Right, right. Know? No, no. Um, and and he's, 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 in a sense, trying to prove himself to his enemies uh, by doing what they were going to do in the first place. Uh, and, and in the same year, in 1984, um, after Keith Joseph had been criticised um, uh, in the Oxford Review of Education, uh, so Keith Joseph said, too many within higher education believe that their case for extra resources is self-evident. That is not so. There are many competing demands for the limited expenditures for which tax and ratepayers can reasonably ask, be asked to provide. That was when he still thought that he might get away with it. Mm. And that, so that was part of the argument for, um, for the, if, if, if you like, the privatisation of higher education, is that there are other things that are just the same that, are, that, that also believe that they have a, a right to... Uh, or a good case to be made for for public funding, and so I, I think one of one of the things that that uh, that these early neoliberals and current neoliberals have, in a sense, won, is the argument about there being no difference between the public funding of education and the the use of public money to help bankers, the use of public money for the military, the use of public money to you know, to to, uh, to to benefit global corporations, which then we say we're giving them the money in order to, in order to create jobs in this country. So there's been there's been a, a a victory for the right in merging all of these together, as if all of them are just making the case for public funding, so that so that we're no longer distinguishing welfare from uh, shoring up the economy in terms of our, our use of public funding, uh, and and I think that that that's the basis. Of their victory, because because well, welfare is an interesting word. Because obviously, doesn't Bentham talk about this? Some idea about the good, for, good. Well, he doesn't use this phrase, but the good of everybody being being his key principle of the reason for changing the art school. So, so they are they are, are dis, they're dissing him, aren't they? Well, they're, they're, you know, what you you asked earlier on about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the neo of the liberalism that, that he opposed. Mm. So he he didn't believe that the market would. Uh, automatically solve all of our problems. He believed that you needed to have, you know, uh, neutral administrators who would calculate the benefit for most. Mm. So, so, so there was a, a calculus that he this, this is had, had to be made by uh, individuals who did not have a class interest in um, benefiting one rather than another. Not so, but no bias. So no bias, no no prejudice. So so, so he so, cool. well, just, just I mean you know it reaches out to the notion of the civil service in that sense. Yeah. So the it Tories now trying to destroy and uh, the civil service is perfectly in tune with what yes, you're saying. Yes, yes, yeah. and it's called, of course Keynesianism is not unrelated to mm. Benthamism mm. in this respect. And post-war, the feeling that um, ordinary people, whoever they are should also benefit from the arts um, was a somewhat aristocratic and liberal idea, but certainly preferable to the high Tory idea that only the market should be the market should be our main recourse. But one of the things that emerged also from your piece is, as I say, that this is a long-term agenda, and that, in fact, far from being an add-on, um, the politics of culture has been an emerging. Mm and one might say frightening field of economics, to which laws have been applied, and we know the, the dismal science, that, that 
economy is not economics is not a pure science, and then the, the bastard child, which is cultural economics, is even worse. And we are being delivered into the hands of these people, as you say in your piece. These are the people making decisions about culture who are n not qualified to do so. That's right. Was this cost disease was um, a, a word, a phrase, rather, Patricia, drew to my attention, which we should mention. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in 1966, uh, Bowman and Bowen, two uh, welfare economists, uh, well, they're grey welfare economists, they, you know, they, they merge with other things once in a while, but they were, uh, they were funded by the Rockefellers to, uh, to do a study of the performing arts, and their, their brief was to, 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 to find some argument to, to justify um, that, that, that this can't be handed over to the market. And they came up with this idea of the cost disease. And the cost disease is, is that um, productivity increases, which work in automated uh, and factory and, and division of labour and so on and so forth, just can't work in the performing arts. You know, you, you, can't, you can't reduce the number of people in an orchestra and get the same output. So there'll always be a cost you can't escape. So, so there's always a cost you can't escape. And, just, and so ju as, as industry reduces year on year its costs through automation, through uh, robotization, and so on and so forth. So relatively to that massive year on year saving, the, uh, the costs of what they said at the time was performing art uh, will year on year rise. So you get to a point at which the costs of, uh, of, 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 a, of a play at the theatre or the costs of, of, of a symphony are just have no comparison to what they used to be. Now, since then, um, Bowman has also included education uh, and, uh, and uh, medicine and, and, and anything that he says requires, you know, uh, an actual human being, face-to-face -face contact, or, or what he calls uh, artisan production, which means, you know, that the human being cannot be replaced by a machine. So anything like that, you know, so somebody fixing your watch, that, that suffers from the cost disease too. Because but people don't have their watches fixed anymore, do they? Well, well precisely. He, he uses this. He says that's why. Yes, yeah. no, because I understand what I mean. Precisely because yeah. of the cost disease. So he says it actually makes sense to throw away an old watch mm. and buy one for $5 now. And what kind of sense that is, mm. is economic sense. Mm. It doesn't make other kinds of sense. It mm. just makes economic sense that it costs you so much to keep the old watch that you might as well just dump them all. Well, this is the price of everything and the value of nothing, you know, uh, which is really where we're at. But in a, in a strange way, um, there are two outcomes from this. One, which David talks about in his polemic, about this kind of... Um, you were joking at the beginning, Matt, about, you know, students don't have a studio floor anymore. And this is very true, that really what what universities would like ideally is probably distance learning. The students could stay at home Absolutely. at their computer monitors and um, everybody else can sort of get their points with the REF and um, hire out the facilities for summer schools for foreign students. And um, the old model has gone completely. So we have two things that David talks about. One is this upended pyramid of where the PhD is now expanding exponentially and the undergraduate disappearing from our midst. And the other is um, alternatives. And it would be nice to 
maybe develop that. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, we, we will. There obviously is a, a, a need to talk about the, what the alternatives are. But just before we get to that point, Dave Beach, you're because we've got two days in this program. One's called Dave Ian, one's called Dave. Dave Beach, you, 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 you talk about quality at the end of your feature, near the end of it, and you talk about uh, we've talked about neoliberalism, and and you are in a positive way, talking at the end of your feature about what to do about this problem. Can we just cover that a little bit more? What, 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 I mean, you bring up quality. Why did you bring up quality? It's, that piece of the feature is quite complicated. So yeah. I, you know. Well, one of, the th- one of the things, one of the reasons why I wrote the feature is because it seemed to me that, that uh, many of the uh, protests and, and arguments against the cuts were, were falling into... Um, um, the kinds of arguments that the right feel that they've already dealt with and they don't need to deal with again. So if, 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 you know, if, if, we, if we have uh, people arguing that the arts ought to be funded because they're great, then we know that um, government ministers and their advisers are just sat in a room smiling, saying, right, so we, we can ignore that. Because that doesn't that doesn't impact on anything that we're trying to do. Because we've overcome this argument already, you know, forty years ago. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was to first of all highlight that, that, that those arguments aren't going to work anymore, uh, and secondly to try to suggest uh, different kinds of argument that we might have. And it and, and it's quite clear that economics is indifferent to quality, mm. and the arts are not cannot be indifferent to quality. So one of the, one of the things that we could do. Is, is, to, is to start to show how these economic uh, ideologies for art and art education are just not going to work. Not applicable. They're not Because you talk about, I think, if I summarise very briefly, you know, say I buy a car, I can read an expert talking about the car. If it's a Land Rover, say, sorry, lucky Land Rover, I've got a quote. I go off-road, it's the best vehicle. It's clear it's the best vehicle. Some expert tells me it's a sort of yes or no argument, pretty much. There's only about three. Whereas art, it's, it's, we're saying it's not quantifiable, qualifiable, qualitatively. It's not objective in that sense. No, it can't be objectified like that. Yeah. So, therefore, the economic um, methods and methodologies or being applied, therefore, are not just unfair, they're wrong. I mean, d- they are wrong. Misapplied. I mean, you know, because I, I teach at Chelsea College of Art and we interview a lot of people every year who want to come to Chelsea and you know one of our questions is why you why have you applied to Chelsea and we often have people say because you're the best or because you're one of the best or because you know you've you've produced all of these great artists that I know about and so on and so forth and our response to that is always well we might we might have good results but that doesn't mean we're right for you because art is about individual experiences that's what Flick was talking about earlier exactly. So, it, so it's not quantifiable, it's not objective. One college can't be the best for everyone because the college will be set up, every college will be different and every college will be set up to, uh, to promote different kinds of practices, different relations but between practice it? and theory but and so will forth. It? Hasn't the drift actually been in the opposite direction? However much individuals like you may resist this, this whole homogenisation that's been going on is desperately trying to corral art education into a homogeneous deliverable, transferable skill. 
Can I, can I ask you a dumb, dumb question here? Right, okay, two things. You've got the market affecting these universities now, so they are going to be competing with their differences because in the market you've got to show what's better for you or what you'll get. But obviously they can appeal to different types of people, blah, blah, blah. But, but then that's... And this is why I said we have to separate bureaucratisation from commodification because they actually point in, in opposite directions. Bureaucratisation wants standardisation, wants uniformity. Which is what Patricia's referring to there. Commodification wants differentiation. Yeah, you know, my product is different yeah. and you need it. Yeah. Although the risk is... This is Dave Barrett, finally. <laughs> the risk is that if you are commodifying um, and competing on a, on a market level with courses, then the way they differentiate themselves is through marketing and advertising mm. rather than any kind of structural mm. complexities within the courses themselves. You mean you know, like an impression they give out through advertising? Well, this ties on to the end of what of, um, Dave's... Um, feature is this idea of well who is who can make a, an informed decision about education if you're a 17 18 year old student looking at BA courses how do you know which one is the right one for you how do you know what is good well what the universities are betting on is that it's through marketing it's through kind of bags it's through gives aways it's through apps it's through their Facebook pages it's the kind of promotion it's this kind of soft promotional material rather than any kind of intrinsic sense. Of or the lovely, bu- the lovovely buildings the lovely building. that they can show pictures of, yeah, or th- that sort of thing. Things that the glass there's atrium. That, there's that uh, lovely quote that Dave has got in his article, which I have to read out. because I Please do, it. please do. It's Chomsky. The goal of advertising is to create uninformed consumers who will make irrational choices. It's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, no, it, is, it is a great quote. I was, trying, I was just looking for it myself, actually, so thank you very much for that. But well, I, th- um, I, think it, I think, Dave, I think we would argue that that kind of information, which is, which is the information that we have to purchase commodities, is not the kind of information that students of art actually need. Mm. And, and particularly because an art education is transformative, mm. then you would expect someone's values to change from entering education to leaving education. Well, you'd hope so the would. values that they have at the point of purchase, so to speak, are not the values that they will have, and therefore they can't know in advance mm. what, what, what they will have wanted to have had <laughs> but, but also, also there is actually something positive in an idea of unlearning. Mm. I mean, when you begin mm. art school, I know that in some art schools, that's actually a proper lesson, as it were, to take away some of the stuff that they've come with from, from some of the uh, non-existing foundation courses. That, that there's, um, al- there's also something else which I would hope students do, which is actually to transform the college itself. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So that it's a mutual transformation. So it's a constant questioning, you mean, of the of the yeah, establishment, absolutely, as it were. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the best things about art school that you know we sh- I would hope would carry on was that 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 ability for play you, and questioning. We keep talking about art school. There are no. No, art no, we, we you're absolutely right. We're talking about university art departments. departments. Yes. With much less autonomy. But perhaps, perhaps at this point it would. Although I'm still concerned that we haven't quite got. I'm dying for Dave to sort of say what we should all do because he's in his piece. He's come. You, you probably have really, but you know this. How do we beat the neoliberalism? Now, I mean, well, it, it, there's, there's not a simple catchphrase. I know, but my my, my suggestion is that um, our arguments should be based on first of all identifying their weaknesses. Mm. So that you know. The, 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 the indifference to quality yeah. is a massive weakness, yeah. not just in art, yeah. but in other fields as well. You know, the fact that economics cannot, uh, cannot give more resources to something because it's good mm. is really a, a massive weakness. It makes them very vulnerable, especially if we can, if we can uh, persuade people 
that values are important, quality is important, principles are important. If we can say that all of these things have 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 a value independent of their price, then then that could swing the advantage towards us. That's one of the one of the ways. There's lots of others as well, which we all know about. Which is, for instance, how every time there's every time there's a there's a crisis in the markets, there has to be an enormous destruction of value, mm. and a destruction of value means you know like leaving shops idle, uh, putting people unemployed. Uh, not producing, even though you have the capacity to produce, letting letting machines rust and so on and so forth. That massive idleness, which capitalism requires in order to rejuvenate itself, is a massive weakness. You know, if 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 we can, I'm sure it wouldn't be that difficult to persuade most people that that is not a good idea, and yet capitalism needs that on a regular basis. So, but also there there is that's absolutely true. But, but this relates to the art school as well, which yes. is that clearly one of the aims. Of the uh, of of the recent uh, transformation of the funding of art education was that some art schools, what I'm calling art schools, would close. Okay, so the idea is that they want more art teachers to be unemployed. They want they want people in uh, in Wolverhampton not to have the opportunity to go to a local art school. Do you know what I mean? So it's about waste and destruction of value. There, th these, these, uh, these colleges around the country have value embodied mm. in their structures, in the people who work there, and have got years of experience working there, in the facilities they've, that they've got, in the traditions that they've got, and that needs to be destroyed in but, order for the e economy of our education in a neoliberal sense to work. As you're saying that we must take on their own arguments and show their vulnerability and their weaknesses, um, David talks about this um, low-end disruption innovation. Is that right? Low-end, yeah. yes. Um, you'll have to explain that. Um, but what I grasp from it is that even their own arguments don't work in the system we are now um, operating, and it's only going to get worse. So perhaps you could explain that extraordinary Yeah, I mean, I think phrase. in terms of this... For this article, I was, and in terms of this discussion, I think it's right. There are two. Dave's right. There are two aspects we're talking about. One is kind of bureaucratization, and the other is a kind of commodification, and they are separate, and they often pull in two different directions. Um, but what is interesting is that they both, they both from a, come from a kind of business background. Um, one is the kind of neoliberal free market that everything should just be open to the uh, the market with no government interference and whatever is best in terms of the market terms will win and that, that's the correct order. Um, that's one argument. In terms of bureaucratization, it's this managerial structure. It's particularly prevalent throughout New Labour, but it's, um, it's continued throughout the large institutions such as the universities that were set up under New Labour or, or given direction under New Labour, is this idea that you can micromanage and assess, 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 as, as Flick's shown in her um, feature. So it's that kind of controlling, managerial um, method. So there are two, two aspects. One is this both coming from a kind of world of business. One is that the idea that the market is right, and the other is that we can, we can manage everything through a kind of managerial structure down to the, the minutest detail. Um, and I think when we're looking at the art schools, art, art universities, um, these sort of pull in two different directions. One is the, the managerial ethos, um, of, of running things from the top down is monolithic. Um, the research frameworks that universities are kind of burdened with 
have become you know a real problem for the staff and the to work with so hence why flick talks about this thing of tutors setting up courses so that coursework is easy to assess rather than interesting or useful for the student um, so there's this a kind of burden on the one hand that they have to provide these nationally rec recognized courses um, qualifications and the reason they had to do that in the past under new labor was that you had to offer the degree level you know a degree in order to get the tuition fees you have to get to get the funding you have to offer a degree um, the other side of course is now that well actually <laughs> there is no funding all of the money from the government for the arts has been scrapped so it's not percent funding from government yes, to yes. arts and humanities yes well, for the, the teaching subsidy for arts and humanities from the government is zero percent except for a few odd cases like things like languages for instance some language courses where the government has decided this is from the brown report lord brown that's with an e brown, brown yeah. yes um he he was suggesting that you know the arts and humanities are not useful to the economy um they shouldn't be supported by the government they should be left to the free market so there'll be no subsidy for arts teaching except for certain things like languages there may be certain languages where the, that you know uh, that the UK requires. You can interpret would, would like things from, with the Chinese to make Yeah, exactly, income. those sorts of things. So there are some humanities courses that do get some funding, but on the whole, no, all you know, arts and humanities, there is no teaching subsidy. Um, and and just, just we mentioned research, just because this is where it gets... I don't want to be, make it boring, but that, that there is actually quite a lot of research money. Is there in... Going to the art departments from government, or the is that not funding right? Funding that is available is the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which has one hundred and twenty million pounds a year to spend on research, but that tends to go towards the higher end, the kind of um, MA, PhD research projects, rather than it's rather than say degree level. Um, and it's certainly not helping the, the students when they enter. No, exactly. and, and just and to clarify that pyramid that Patricia mentioned, you're, you're talking about now. It used to be that the point of the pyramid was the PhD, perhaps in the university, or postdoctoral, yeah. or postdoctoral, and the bottom was, you know, the would it, would it have been the foundation? foundation yeah. But now the foundation is not even in the university funding. Is it? Is it? It's in the further educational well, what area. What we're finding it? is that I mean there has been a proliferation because there is research funding. Um, there has been a proliferation of um, a MA, you know, postgraduate. Um, postgraduate courses, so MAs, PhDs, postdoctoral research, there is some funding for that. Um, and also, because universities are now being run by managers with the, from a kind of business perspective, it makes sense for them that courses have to make a return. So the ones that are cheap to run but bring in funding are going to be expanded, and the ones that are expensive to run and don't bring in much funding going to be reduced. And you're saying they're the foundation and BA, po p well, graduate level? Well, particularly for foundations, I mean this was a few years ago, but there was a certainly some universities were looking, you know, that they that said that their strategy was to expand their postgraduate courses because they brought in more funding. And again, this is made on economic grounds, not yeah, on grounds exactly. of quality. Absolutely. Um, and short-termist yes. <laughs> decision as well. Um, but the idea that and it's ideological too. Yes, yeah. of course. And the, the the point of this is is that art, for a long time, you know, art, art was um, the the um, the British Arts Council was set up before the National Health Service, so so it was a pioneer of welfare economics, 
and, and it has been a mainstay of the argument for quality against economic value ever since then and before then, you know. Mm. Um, and, and so art has been one of the targets of neoliberals. Neoliberal economists and neoliberal politicians have attempted generation after generation to, ha to, to, to stop this. And, uh, and, and, and Keynes like was absolutely going. involved in that. Mm. I mean, the, the, the link between the econo economics and, and mm. the cultural sector is absolutely there with Keynes, isn't mm. it? But he wasn't a neoliberal. No, no. exactly. That's what no. I'm saying. He's the alternative to that, yeah. or an alternative. Are you saying he's better? Well, he's, he's, um, he, he, he argued that art should be funded according to its quality. Mm. So that's I, better than saying that art yes. should be funded if it has market demand yes. and you know, if, the, if there's a, a, a wealthy person there ready to fork out some private money for it. Mm. I've got this um, thing that happens in my brain where too many different bits of facts come together and they start merging in a way... And that's what's happening to me at the moment. And I want you to unravel it, please. Um, so I've got um, one thing is in the um, uh, review of, of Malcolm Quinn's book where you make a very interesting, um, or he makes a very interesting point about what Bentham's doing in relation to the aristocratic privileging of the Royal Academy. So there's that. And when I was reading it, I was... I'm afraid, reminded of an institution that is just up the road from us or has one of its headquarters just up the road from us that I used to work with um, and uh, whose chair of the trustees is Lord Brown. Mm. And I want to think with you about the relationship of global museums, art museums, like the Getty or like Tate, in relation to what's actually happening in the destruction of art education. Because, of course, you know, Nick Sirota is absolutely out there, one of the first to campaign for decent funding for arts education. However, you have a, a, the chair of the trustees is someone who is, I'm assuming, a collector. I haven't done my checking, but I'm assuming he's a collector. And he is also someone who is actually uh, advocating ex the... Um, Total the, the abandonment yeah, of funding yeah. of arts and humanities. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is an ex-chairman of BP. Um, <laughs> exactly. And one of the things that I'm interested in was when um, I was at the Getty, I found that uh, during the period I was there, there was a new CEO, uh, James Cuno, um, who had actually been at the Courtauld, uh, who came and one of the first acts he did was to cut in half the education programme of the museum getting rid of 40% of the people of the staff, most of whom were, many of whom were artist educators. Uh, and what did he do? He replaced them with docents. Yes. Docents are, in, in, in that terminology, older, yes. um, retired, voluntary, normally women, voluntary, voluntary women, women of yes. a certain class and age. Yes. And, and, and race, actually, come to think of it. Um, so... There is something there, and I couldn't help thinking, and when he was talking, when he sent out the, 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 the information about what he was doing, he was talking about the importance of maintaining the, uh, the collection and, com complete, and continuing to update it and, 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 and so on. And I couldn't help thinking about the value to him and to the other trustees who I'm assuming were collectors because otherwise they wouldn't have become trustees 
of keeping prices up in terms of the of the objects that were being bought and sold for the museum or bought acquired for the museum and the relationship therefore to education and the cuts well, in it, education isn't it down to what we were talking about earlier the quote um, about advertising is about ignorant making ignorant choices irrational choices help me here well it's exactly the same thing because he's already at the top of the tree it's it's what Lawrence Wiener calls you pull the ladder up after you you don't mm. want people mm. to join you on your platform mm. higher up but also it's it's a strange contempt for art that somehow if you're of his class and money and background you get art mind you what kind of art I'd love mm. to see his collection mm. <laughs> um, but that somehow you don't need to be educated. It's an absolute consumerist idea about what art is. It's exactly where we started. It's this whole idea that art is about making consumer choices, not informed consumer choices, but reading, being seduced by the advertising, being um, caught up in this whole economic argument that this painting costs a lot of money, it must be good, and he's in that world. There's, there's, a, there's another thing which is uh, around about roughly the same time as Bentham, which is, uh, you know, Bentham is critical of aristocracy and taste, as if, as if yes. those two things went together, yes. and taste was just a form of prejudice and bias. Yes. And as well as, as well as being against taste in art, he's against taste in government. So what he doesn't want is, is for someone to be in a position where they can just make a decision based on their background as to what should happen next. Now, exactly the, uh, roughly the same time, you've got German philosophers arguing for a new conception of taste. All right? And this new conception of taste is, we, we would, you know, in this, concept, in, this, in this context, we might well call a bourgeois concept of taste in, in, in opposition to this aristocratic concept of taste as something known, something, something that you can inherit from other people in your class, something that you get just by going to certain kinds of schools. And this bourgeois concept of class uh, concept of, of, of taste, rather, um, requires more of each individual. Yes. You have to exert yourself. Yes. You can't just buy a work of art. You have to exert yourself in, in, in viewing it in order and that's where to consume it. Comes in, of course. So consumption isn't something done through So you're saying so you wouldn't be able to buy it if you didn't have a degree? No, no, no. Well, no, you can buy it, but you can't, and you can't necessarily enjoy, enjoy it. it. Okay, key so point, so key point. So Thank this, you. There's Thank this you. other aspect, which is to say, go ahead and buy it. It doesn't mean anything. Mm, exactly. I mean, there are because, because you Because just as, as I was saying before about uh, being an art student requires self-transformation. Being an art consumer requires, requires self-transformation. Self if you don't have that self-transformation, if all you're doing is spending yes. money on things all the time, you're not actually doing anything without But what would the ex-chairman of BP understand about that? Can I just say that one way he could learn about it would be to read uh, Robert Browning's My Last Duchess, which we often think of as being about something completely different, but it explores and exposes perfectly the tensions that you're describing, and it was written in 1842. Mm -hmm. So go to My Last Duchess <laughs> and you'll find all about it, because, of course, what it wraps into it is issues around um, which one might one might easily do a, a feminist reading of it now. You know, there are many different ways in which one can read it and think about it. It's a, it's a great poem. Thank you for that. I shall do that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> D- David, just we've got five minutes left, but so let's just very quickly. You're in your piece to be mildly, possibly optimistic that you're, you were saying that there are alternative things are beginning to happen because of this thing with the university uh, not receiving any money from government anymore. What what kind of things are we talking about occurring? Well, I think one of the things I wanted to do is that if we're looking, it's now we've sort of forced upon universities or art education to be looked at through these kind of business business lenses and I thought well what if we do just that and we look using business theory and look at art education as it is well actually it's in a parlous state I mean the, you know that there are fewer students coming through at the bottom at the low end than than there have been for a very long time it's ballooning at the top end it's a really short-termist um, so it's questionably not working yeah it's financially not, speaking it's, it's in in business theory it's called over serving it's serving people at the top end but not people at the bottom end and so there's this term that Patricia mentioned earlier um, low end disruption theory if disruption theory is something you've probably come around quite a lot it was developed by Clayton Christensen a Harvard econom- economist um, it's the idea is that there are these kind of incumbent markets where uh, there are these large players that are over serving and just working to the top end and then at the but they're leaving out the kind of low end and what happens is that that's open for um, new businesses to come in and offer very low-level things, things that the, the incumbents wouldn't bother doing because it seems like it's low quality, it's not good enough, it's not, it's not going to serve their high-end consumers who are paying lo- large sums for it. Um, what happens is these smaller businesses get a foothold because they offer something that's very low-end, very cheap, it's good enough for some people but then they improve very rapidly because they don't have the same systems in place. They're not encumbered, in, in my example here, they're not necessarily encumbered by all the assessing criteria that the degrees um, require at the minute. So you know, if you are running a university and offering a degree, degree course, there is a huge burden on you. Um, which may cost money to, which, to, to, to administer. Which money to administer, to deliver, um, all of these things. Now, if you bring in, if you have start up a kind of grassroots um, low-end educational model, and it will never, or at the moment, definitely not replace the BA. It's not good enough, but it might be good enough um, to gain a foothold. And once it does that, if people are starting to see that actually I can get a better quality education without worrying about the qualifications, if the education itself is more useful, it's it's not buying the gray, buying the degree. It's so it's more it's, quality. Yeah, more quality <laughs> for your money. Um, if you Very serve quality. the low end in that way, then then the entire art education market becomes disrupted in this uh, a method that is, is quite well described. And we we sense that may be occurring in a, yeah, in a gradual many, way, many, don't I've we? I've got a list in my polemic yeah. here of, of all sorts of different courses that are being set up. Some are quite are setting themselves specifically as art schools. Um, and the kind of traditional, you know, you get a studio, you get tutors, you get seminars, you get a final show, but not offering a degree. You might have a diploma of study or something. I particularly um, like the NA. The NA, Islington Mill Art Academy up in Manchester <laughs> offers an NA rather than an MA. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but there are lots of other smaller ones like summer schools or reading groups and, you know, all these... Yeah, I was going to say, it's not just the same format, is it? I mean, that's no, the beauty of it in a way. Exactly. It can go They're anywhere and, and maybe will. this is always how it has been. The first academy was an upper room in somebody's shop in Rome with a half a dozen people and another one in Bologna run by two brothers and a cousin. That's how it started. And maybe that's where we should go. Back. I think, and also it may be where we have to end the programme, because <laughs> you've all talked brilliantly, and I really thank you all for coming in. Felicity Allen... 
Dave Beach, David Barrett and editor of Art Monthly, Patricia Bickers. I'm Matt Hale, and before you go and turn your radio off, I'm just going to say that there is a fantastic deal to subscribe to Art Monthly, and we'd be really grateful if you did take it up. The main reason is because we want you to read it, i.e. want you to read what these people have been talking about. It's different. It's not the same as them talking about it. There's more information, more facts. Highly recommended. Ten issues for £29. That's a saving of £17 on a magazine bought in a shop. But if you wish to buy in a shop, you're very welcome to do that as well. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be with you again in the future, I hope. Goodbye. <laughs>